for Hur, who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. <clears throat> to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I don't think you have to live long in this life to know that trials and difficulties and hardships can be very disorienting to us in faith. You know, there's something called this spatial disorientation. Spatial disorientation is what happens to pilots oftentimes when they, when they enter a, a severe patch of weather or at night when they lose sight of the horizon or the ground. Uh, without that fixed point of reference, they can become disoriented. They can, they can go in different directions. They can even be upside down. It can be a very deadly experience. They, they are disoriented when that fixed point is no longer there. This is what happens to us spiritually uh, when we have various troubles and difficulties and trials. You know, when you, when you hear the words, you're fired, and you all of a sudden become in sheer panic over your finances. Or uh, your spouse says, I don't love you anymore, or I've been unfaithful to you. Or your child says, I hate you. Wish you weren't my parent. These different things in life that come to us can be very disorienting to us, leaving us wondering, where is God in this? And does God love me? Does God know me? Uh, why has this plan gone in this direction for me? I'm sure you felt that way, that sense of, almost like someone's hit you on the head with a, with a hard object, you're, you're, you're confused, you're dazed. You're wondering, where is God in all of this? Well, it, it's this kind of context uh, that this promise of God's hope comes. It, it, it's this kind of disorienting time among the people of Judah uh, that this hope, this promise of God came. In, in other words, in our context, in the book of Isaiah, with Ahaz, uh, the people were in a deep darkness. In fact, it says at the end of chapter 8 that they were thrust into a deep darkness. Now, you know the causes of this. 
the despair of the people. We talked about it last week. Uh, last week, King Ahaz, probably the last free king of Judah, he is being threatened militarily by two nations to the north. Uh, it looks like his days are actually numbered. He's, he's quite concerned. And instead of turning to God by faith in this time of, of great fear, he turns to a king to the east of Assyria, a superpower to the east. He turns and makes a, an alliance with him. Now, sadly, this is an unholy alliance, and it begins to crumble just a few months after Isaiah had offered to him to ask for a sign of God's favor. Assyria would, this superpower, the first superpower, you know, Egypt was a power in history past, uh, but Assyria was the first superpower that wanted to dominate other lands. Filled, uh, they would leave atrocities in their wake. And they would soon come and destroy these northern kingdoms and they were going to come and take the spear right down the throat of Judah. That is, they'd come right through the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are the northern provinces in Israel and it's because of the mountains and the sea, it's where most invading armies would come. That's why it was seen as contemptible. So much devastation they experienced. They must have the contempt of God for them to suffer so much. So these are a people in darkness, a people in trouble. You can imagine to know that an army is going to be invading, an army of great power and might of which you cannot stop is going to come and will ruin everything that you understand as life. It's in this darkness that God gives to us a hope. It reminded me of the words of of Lord Edward Gray, he was, the, he was the British Foreign Secretary before the First World War. And he said these words, he said, the lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. This is the kind of darkness that I want you to feel that this context comes out of, that this passage comes out of. So it's in this darkness that God gives us, the passage that Miriam read. We see three promises that God gives to us. Three promises. The first promise is that God is giving to us an ultimate hope. He is giving to us a future, a promise of restoration, a promise of all things being made right, that all things will be made new. You're going to see that in the first five verses. It's a promise. It's an ultimate hope that we're waiting for, that we're longing for. And that this promise, this hope, that God is promising to, us, promising to us is going to come about through a son, through this child that will be born. In verse 6, we're going to see that the unique child that comes. And this unique child is going to come and he's going to begin the fulfillment of this hope by establishing a glorious and unsurpassable kingdom. And you're going to see that in verse 7, an unsurpassable kingdom. Since we're going to see these three promises, I want to walk them just one by one with you. First, this, this incredible and ultimate hope. Look at me in the first five verses because you see language like gloom being pushed back to glory. You see despair turning into light. So you have these people who are about to see their lives actually upended. And here's what he says. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. He says, the people in darkness have seen a great light. The people who dwelt in deep darkness, on them a light is shown. 
You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. The yoke of his burden, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is incredible. Do you notice what's going on here? It's all in the past tense. It hasn't happened yet. It's an ultimate hope. But why does he give it in the past tense? It hasn't even happened. You know, the prophetic word is often given in past tense to increase the certainty with which it comes. He's showing us, oh, it's so certain. I'll speak of it in the past tense. You see the gloom moving to glory. You see this idea of anguish being replaced with exceeding joy, the kind of joy that comes at a harvest. You see this idea of the rod of oppression, injustice be broken, where there's now justice and equality. You see this idea of the blood and war and conflict changing into peace and tranquility and life. This is the hope that God is giving to a people in darkness. He's saying, mind you, this is the promise of God. There is a hope that awaits you. Don't you long for this? I mean, when you hear these words, the rod of oppression broken, the the, the garments of war and the weapons of war being burned, we need them no more. Can you imagine? The gloom and the despair that we face in this life We have a dilemma in life. The life is filled with disease. It's filled with death. It's filled with struggle. All of us know a small level, at least, of discontent that we have. Men live their lives in quiet desperation. We all do. This life is a dilemma. It always ends. No matter how sweet it is right now, you know it cannot continue. And so he offers to us this incredible hope. But what I want you to see is that the promise that God is giving to us here, it's been a promise that he's made from the beginning. From the beginning. And when God created the heavens and the earth in the initial chapters of Scripture, it was good. It was beautiful. They walked with God in the cool of the day. It was a beautiful garden. It was a beautiful fellowship with God. It was all very good. Sin enters, our selfishness, our self-idolatry, our need to be like God enters and brings ruin to everything. But God won't let it stand. He promises to redeem, to restore. He, he promises to rebuild. He promises to renew all things. This is really why at the very beginning of the Bible, when you see the, the um, miracle of Noah and the flood, think about it. What is Noah a picture of? God will bring judgment. Yes, that's clear. But God shows us in the saving of Noah and the rebirthing of an earth, God knows how to renew. God knows how to restore. God knows how to take from destruction and bring life. And that's why it says after Noah, the earth began to sprout again. It's like a new creation. So God is showing us an imperfect picture of how he can renew hope in the midst of despair, in the midst of darkness. He's showing us that. But it seems like kind of an empty promise as the Assyrian army is marching toward the land of Judah. How is he going to keep his promise? That's what you're to be asking. So when you're in the midst of despair and someone gives you hope, you're like, what's the hope built upon? Well, not surprisingly, the way God does it, it's built upon a child. And that usually doesn't elicit great hope. My hope is in a child that would be born to us. 
I mean, God, God brings a unique son to show us how he will achieve the promise that he's given to us of hope. It's a unique child, kind of an unlikely hero. Uh, unlikely, kind of like the man Gideon. So you saw in verse 4 that reference to Midian. You know, you know, we're in the time of the history of Israel. We're in the last of the kings. Ahaz was probably the last of the free kings. But in verse 4, you see that reference to Midian, the rod of the oppressor broken as in the days of Midian. You know, Midian was a nation of many, many people. And the Midianites would long terrorize Israel. This took place in the period of Judges. This is before all the kings. You're going back a bit into the Old Testament. This is in the period of Judges where every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It was a time of great just disrepair for the nation of Israel. They had forgotten God. They had gone on their idolatrous ways. And yet God was showing them that he can deliver. He raises up a man by the name of Gideon. And, and Gideon is an unlikely hero. He comes from a small family. He comes from a, a little-known clan. And, and God raises him up. And, and he doesn't give him thousands and thousands of men to defeat the Midianites. The Midianites would come in and terrorize Israel, take their crops, and, and ruin their lives. He just gives them 300 men to fight this massive nation. 300 men. And the armaments of battle, uh, they get candles and pots. That's what they get. Clay plots and some torches. That's all they get. And yet God delivers the nation. He delivers the nation. He delivers the people through an unlikely hero like Gideon. So the nation of Israel knew God uses unlikely heroes to deliver. A child? A child is going to bring hope to us when the nation of Assyria is coming at us, a child. But what we find in the text in verse 6 is he is not an ordinary child. Oh, he's ordinary in the sense that he's born to us, so that tells us he's human. He has human parentage. But I want you to notice, he's born to us. Most children are born to whom? To their parents. But not this child. He's born to us. He's born for us. He's born for the benefit of us. But he's not just born, he's also given. So the hope that God has promised to us is going to come from a son who is given to us. He's given to us by God. God doesn't give us a new technology. He doesn't give us a new philosophy. He doesn't give us a new military strategy to bring about a hope in this life. He gives to us a child, a unique child. You, you know he's unique because look at his names. He's the wonderful counselor. What does this mean? It doesn't mean that he's really good at giving counsel to people. Uh, when you see wonderful counselor, I want you to think, I want you to think miraculous counselor, breathtaking. I, I want you to think supernatural. I want you to think that the wisdom that he gives is divine wisdom. You think about all of our leaders they have advisors. They need advisors. But their advisors can only advise them out of what they've learned or what they've experienced in life. He needs no advice. And, and human wisdom, I mean, it's foolish. We, can't, we still can't figure out, is bread good or not? Is butter good or not? And, and yet one comes with divine wisdom. Can you imagine having a monarch like that that is full of wisdom, divine wisdom? Not just is he a wonderful counselor, he is 
full of power. He's El Gabor. He's the mighty God. Now, there have been many mighty kingdoms in this world, many mighty, mighty leaders, Alexander, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but, but he is God. He is of God. He is God. He has power over the heavens and the earth. There is no limit to his power. There's no limit to his might. He is able to sustain us. He's able to persevere us. This child that will come won't just be full of wisdom. He'll be full of power. Not just that, he'll be full of compassion. He's the everlasting father. Now, it's interesting to call a child a father. I, I think father refers to his paternal love for us. His paternal love, his protection, his provision, his care for us. And that will be for eternity. He will look over and for us like a good father will. But he's also full of peace. He's the prince of peace. In other words, while many princes of this world would like to see peace in their realms, he can actually achieve peace. He will be one who brings about peace between God and men and between men and men, and between men and creation. He won't bring the cessation of hostilities alone. He's going to bring about a shalom. That word means a wholeness, an integrity, a solidness to life. We know how things ought to be, but they never are. He can bring it about to be. So when, when you think about this child, you have this hope. All of us are walking through periods of darkness, or we will. And we need a point of reference. We need a fixed point to not become so disoriented. This fixed point is the hope that God gives to us. He will redeem all things, and he's going to do it through the Son. But look at his names. I mean, is this not a monarch that you would submit to? Is this not a king that you would, that you would literally worship? Full of wisdom, full of power, full of compassion, full of grace and peace. This is a child that God had promised to Isaiah 700 years before. But not just is the child going to achieve the hope that we desire. He's going to achieve it by establishing a kingdom. Look with me in verse 7. In verse 7 we read, Of the increase of his government, here is one government that we would like to see increase. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth forevermore, the Lord of hosts will do this. See, Isaiah is promising the people that when the child comes, a government will be upon his shoulders. He will be responsible for it, and his government will increase. Now, this child that's promised, remember last week, you know, God did promise to Eve a child. She would have a son, and the son would crush the head of the serpent and would bring about salvation, would take upon himself our sins. Uh, God also promised Abraham that he would have a seed, or he would have a son, and this son would be the joy of all nations. He would be a blessing to all the nations. And then we learn that God also promised to David that he would have a son. And this son, it's the same son, this son would bring about a kingdom, an eternal kingdom. Let me remind you of the promise in, in 2 Samuel. He says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, he's speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, 
and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is a promise that God has given that this child will have a kingdom. He'll establish a kingdom. There will be no end to it. It will be a kingdom that goes far beyond the nation of Israel. It won't be a tribal kingdom. It will be an expansive kingdom. It will draw in the peoples from all nations and all peoples. It'll be a kingdom that will endure. We've seen the Persian kingdom, the Assyrian kingdom, the Roman kingdom, the Greek kingdom. They all had a short shelf life to them. His kingdom will endure forever. His kingdom will be marked by justice and righteousness. You think about that. No racism. No inequality. It'll be a kingdom of, it'll be a safe kingdom. It'll be a just kingdom. It'll be marked by holiness. What kingdom in this globe can you point to that's marked by justice and holiness and righteousness? That's the kind of kingdom that he will bring. So this is the promise given. This is the third promise. The first one is that there's a hope. The second one is this hope is going to come through the Son, and the Son's going to establish a kingdom and call people into it. Don't you want to be a citizen of this kingdom? I I mean, if you're in darkness, are these promises not like a buoy to you in high seas. These promises are for us that he will bring forth a son who will renew all things in the establishment of a kingdom. But how's he going to do it? Did he do it? Did God fulfill his promise? Well, of course, my answer to that would be absolutely yes. This is what the point of Christmas is, the celebration of Christmas. Did this child come? Well, let, let me remind you of the words in Luke. It's interesting that an angel gives these words to Mary in Luke chapter 1. Last week, it was an angel that spoke to Joseph and said that the child that that your, your wife, your betrothed, has conceived, it is from God. It's from the Spirit. She has not been with another man. A virgin will give birth. And the angel explains her pregnancy apart from human intervention, without human intervention, he explains it as a fulfillment of Isaiah 7, the Emmanuel child. And now an angel comes to Mary. And, of course, we're in Isaiah 9. We're still in the Emmanuel section of this book of Isaiah. Here's what the angel says. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call him then you you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary is hearing the words of the prophecy in Isaiah. Mary knows her child, the child, that the Spirit of God has conceived will be Son of the Most High. He will be the child that Isaiah spoke of 700 plus years before. She has the Messiah. She has the child upon whom God's government will rest. She has the Son of God as a child. Can you imagine what that would have caused her to think the bewilderment? God's promise had finally come true. It had finally been fulfilled. Not just that, but Jesus knew this. As he grew in wisdom, he walked in this. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 4. 
In Matthew chapter 4, he records this. Leaving Nazareth, he's speaking of Jesus, of course. Leaving Nazareth, that's where he was raised. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali. The way to the sea along the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the, the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You realize what's happening. Jesus moves from Nazareth to Capernaum to display to the people that he is the son of God. He is the son of David. He is fulfilling the prophecy made. But why is it good to Zebulun and Naphtali? Well, not just because Isaiah said it. Zebulun and Naphtali, that area of Galilee, that's what I spoke about, the contemptible land. Those were the people living in darkness. That was the darkest of the dark. They were living in the shadow of death because of all the threats that they faced. He goes to the darkest place to bring the brightest hope. He goes there to begin to announce the arrival of God's kingdom. God is now making a move to reclaim his creation. And he's going to do it from the darkest place. That's where God often appears to us, in the darkest place. I mean, it's when our lives are just going down the chute that God often appears so great and so mighty. And so we dread, we fear darkness, but it's there his light is brightest. Jesus goes there to announce that the kingdom is now at hand. The kingdom has now come. He doesn't go there with armies. He doesn't go there drawing new boundaries. He doesn't go there establishing a kingdom with this list of ethical demands that you have to meet. He goes there. What's he do when he, when he goes there? It says, And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent the kingdom of God's hand. Jesus is going to overcome darkness by preaching the gospel. Jesus is going to overcome the darkness by declaring the greatness of God in the gospel. When I speak about the gospel, what I mean by that is that God has kept his promise to send that son, a child born to us, a son given to us, who would bear upon himself our sins. So Jesus came to live a righteous life so that he might, as Levy prayed, meet the righteous demands of God. That, that Jesus lived in such a perfect way. Unlike the first Adam that fell, he, the second Adam, did not fall. He lived righteously. He fulfilled righteousness. He lived in such a perfect way that God could say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And, and then he died. But he died this atoning death. He didn't die for his sins. He died for our sins that were placed upon him. So he's our substitute. He has come. The son has been given to us by God to take upon himself our sins. And this is what he's preaching. He's saying, repent of your sins. Enter the kingdom of God, which I am establishing in my life and my death and in my resurrection. This is the kingdom that he comes to establish. Darkness will be overcome slowly but surely. The seeds of the gospel come in and they start to grow. It's like leaven and it begins to grow. We're part of it now. We're in the continuum of this gospel going out. 2,000 years later, the gospel is still expanding. You see this in the beginning of his ministry. 
you see that he was the child. Think about his kingdom. You saw it expanding even as he ministered. He ministered not just to the nation of Israel. He ministered to the Samaritan woman. He ministered to the Roman centurion. Why? He's showing the extent that his kingdom will go. Who came to him when he was born? Wise men? Men from Babylon? The nations were coming to worship the king? Showing to the nations? This is a Christ for all people, not just for Israel. But not just is his kingdom expanding. His kingdom was marked by justice and righteousness. He cared for the widow. He cared for the broken. He cared for the prostitute. He cared for the sinner. He cared for the children. I mean, it was marked by holiness and justice. Now, of course, his kingdom came in reality, but not in its fullness. And I want you to see that's the nature of the expanded kingdom. Jesus established the reality of the kingdom, and you see that in the miracles. Right? He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He gave words to the mute. He cleansed the leper. He cleansed the demonized. He fed the hungry. He raised the dead. All these miracles are showing us the, his capacity to renew and to restore and to redeem all things. He showed us in his miracles the nature of the kingdom that he was bringing. There were real miracles done in space and time showing this is the kingdom that I will establish. But it isn't yet full. It has not yet been consummated. This is why theologians call the now and the not yet. It's now real. It's not yet complete. We live now in this time of waiting, waiting for it to come. But you see that though the kingdom is here in reality, but not in fullness, you, you see that it's a paradoxical kingdom. It, it, it's a kingdom that causes you to kind of shift your head a little. Here one who is fully God, and yet he comes as a child. An infant, weak, insignificant. You see that one is fully worthy of worship, and yet he's rejected, he's hated, and he endures it. You see one that, is, that it deserves a throne, and he gets a cross. He dies. This, this prince makes peace through his own death, that, that he himself takes the curse upon which was placed on us. He takes it upon himself, that he becomes a curse for us, that we might become righteous before God? I mean, it, it's who would think such a story that he would bear our sin and shame, as it says in Isaiah, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is the message of Christmas, that God made a promise that for you living in darkness, a light has now dawned. For those of us living in the shadow of death, of which we all are, we're all in the shadow of death. We will all die. We all live with our bodies slowly deteriorating. We live in the shadow of death. Upon us, a light has dawned. Hope has been given. Hope that will be in a son. And the Son has now come, and He's established His kingdom. This is the message of Christmas. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, this is important for you to hear. This is a message for you. If you're considering Christianity, maybe you're wrestling with it, maybe you're just uncertain about it, this is a message for you. It's really both a warning and an opportunity. It is a warning. It's a warning that the joy that comes from Christmas, that the world experiences, you know, the joy of presents and tinsel and, and parties and pleasures. 
That isn't it. I mean, we, you don't have to live long to know that the parties have got to be replaced with more parties, and, and the presents wear out, get tiring, and you need new presents and more presents. And, and as you get older, the presents seem to give you less contentedness. You know what I'm saying? You get older, and the things that once gave you joy don't give you the same joy. They're just earthly things. The warning is don't try to draw joy out of that. The other warning is that God has made a move on this earth. This is really, as I said last week, it's an invasion. God sent a son. He established his kingdom. And it's important where you are with this king. This is not a benign entrance into the world. This is an entrance into the world where he is claiming ownership of all things of which you are part of and where you stand in relationship to this king. And the warning gives birth to an opportunity. You know, he could have come and brought judgment to the world. He did not. He came and preached. He gave people an opportunity to repent and enter the kingdom of God. That is really what I'm doing right now. What Jesus did on that day in Galilee, I am doing right now. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. To enter this kingdom is through repentance. It's a confession of our sin that we've sinned against God. We've been idolaters. We love ourselves more than anything in this world. And it's to repent of that. And it's to, it's to believe. It's to hope. It's to trust that the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient to reconcile me to God. And with that should come affections of joy-filled submission to him. But for the Christian here, how do you prepare for Christmas? Besides the wrapping and the, and the preparing of food. Well, it, it, it's, it's a sweet time for us, Advent. Advent means coming. We know that he's coming again. We know that he's come, but he's coming again. So how do we prepare for this? You know, the church is really, it's not, a, it's not exactly equivalent to the kingdom of God. But the church is the visible expression of God's kingdom. And the church is the one that's carrying out the agenda of the kingdom. And so how do we wait as members of this kingdom? How do we wait? Well, first, let's wait with rejoicing, with joy. Right? The shepherds, it says that they, they were glorifying God and praising God for all that they had seen and heard. Or the wise men. It says when they saw a star, they were filled with exceeding joy. And then when they found the child, they bowed down and worshipped. I mean, as we wait, we want to be people who rejoice. Rejoicing over Christ. Yes, we can enjoy the many gifts that God has given to us, of family and gifts and all that we may enjoy over these next few days as we prepare for Christmas. But let us not be distracted away from the, from the focus of our attention. It's to be the glory of Christ. The, he came. A child for us. He lived a life. He suffered and died for us. He's raised to the right hand of God. Jeremy Burroughs was a great theologian of a few years back, and he wrote this about preparing for Christmas. He says, Labor to set Jesus Christ before your eyes. Look upon him as the great wonder of the world. Never leave meditating until you find your heart come to admire at the glory of God in Jesus Christ. If ever your hearts are taken up with admiring anything in the world, let them be taken up with the admiration of Christ. 
This may confidently be concluded. The soul that does not find itself taken with admiring the glory of God in Christ never knew what Christ meant. For Christ is such a kind of Savior that if God propounds Christ to the soul in any measure, it's impossible that the heart must be taken up with him. Do not think, therefore, that you must only be saved by Jesus Christ, but know what manner of Savior he is. It is he whose name is wonderful. He is wonderful. You're going to be distracted like silly going forward. I mean, the entertainment, the distractions that we have, we are not a people that do well with meditation. We're not, we're not doing well with contemplation. May I encourage you as you wait that you would carve time out for his glory and your ultimate joy. Carve time out. Worship with us. Week in and week out, we are a people that gather together as a display of the kingdom to the world to meditate on Christ. But then secondly, I would say to you, as we wait, may we declare the glory of Christ, not just meditate on it, but declare it. We are called to not just gather together, but scatter with it. This is a message of the gospel. Listen, there is no other time during the year with which so much of our country is caught up with one month of consideration of God. We're going to be singing joy to the world, hark the herald angels sing. There's going to be Jesus stuff everywhere. There are ample opportunities for us to be able to speak to particularly our family as families gather together, but even those outside of our family about the real reason for Christmas. But here's what I want, I want you to realize. This isn't something you do as a task. If our hearts admire him, if they're caught up with him, it, it, it's a response to the joy that we have, that we have a hope in the midst of darkness, that a son has come and established a kingdom to bring us to himself forever. So let your speaking of Jesus be out of the overflow of your own joy of, of him and all that he's done. You know, th this, is the, this is the idea. The idea is that the world is going to be for God. Jesus says that you will preach the gospel to all the nations and then the end will come. That's the church speaking forth about the glory of God, about the coming of the Son. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because God has fulfilled a promise to send a Son to save. And He has saved and He is saving and it will all be beautiful. All the gloom will be pushed back to glory. All the despair will be delight. All of your anguish will be of exceeding joy as that at harvest time. That's what we have. So as we wait, let us meditate on Christ. Let us declare Christ. But also as we wait, um, let us lament. Let us lament. Many of us are suffering. And, and we do live in that tension of the days that he has come, but he has not come in fullness. We are still dying. We are still suffering. Christians do lament. We turn to the Psalms and we do weep over the sadness, the brokenness of our world. It is a time to lament as well. Lament those that don't know Christ. Lament those who are just living their lives as if everything is just here. Let us lament for those that are suffering. It is a time for that. Jesus says that they will fast. They will fast. While the bridegroom is with them, well, they won't, but they will fast. 
and the bridegroom is taken away, and he is not with us now. So we lament. But as we wait, let us seek justice, and let's live in righteousness. Let's submit to the king. Seeking justice, what do I mean by that? You may not be at the epicenter of some major system, systemic injustice, but you know, let's just start with our own lives. Let's start with our own families. Are we being just and fair with those with whom we live? Are we being just and fair with our families, with our church community, in our workplaces? Are we speaking with integrity? Are we, li- are we living with righteousness? Are we pursuing holiness? His kingdom is marked by justice and righteousness. Are they part and parcel of our lives and the relationship we have? Let's start in our marriages and then just go outward from there. And if you're not, as I said, in the midst of some systemic injustice, let's pray for that, for the unborn. Let's pray for and against the racism and against the other injustices in our country. God, have mercy on us. Let's lament those things and pray that by his spirit, he might raise people up to bring about change as they declare the gospel. And then last, as we wait, let's long for him. I find this to be, uh, to be sometimes difficult to move towards, to actually longing for Christ to return. Uh, that, that the promises of gloom to glory and despair to delight, uh, that he might return, that he might return soon and bring about all things. You know, Jesus Christ came not just to save us, but to redeem all of creation, to establish a new kingdom. A new heavens and earth are going to come from heaven to this earth. He's going to restore all things. Love the way C.S. Lewis wrote about it. He says, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. The whole mass redeemed. May we long for him to come. Can we pray that? You know, we, we've been fasting each month all year. We've been fasting that our love for God's glory would increase. You know, fasting has been an ancient tradition in the church, reminding us ourselves of a number of things. First, that we're very human, uh, that, that we can't go a few hours without our stomach, reminding us, you've you got to eat, you're not going to make it if you don't. And it reminds us of how dependent and how mortal we are. Uh, but, but fasting also reminds us of we need something more than food. We need God to feed us. We need God. And, and, and so we've been fasting once uh, every second Tuesday of each month. And this is the last second Tuesday of 2019. And the object of our fasting is that we would long for him to return. We would long for him to come back. Wouldn't you long for that? Wouldn't that be Unbelievable every tear wiped away, every sickness fixed and cured, every hardship, every despair, we would again dwell with God. Can we fast to have hearts? So we'll begin fasting on on that Monday night after supper and then through Tuesday. This isn't just going without food. This is a reminder. We're in prayer. We're asking God, give us a heart that longs for you. As we wait, let's long. So, 
We have in this text three promises, three glorious promises. In the midst of despair, he says, there is an ultimate hope coming that I will renew and restore all things. And this hope is going to come in a son. And the son's going to do it through the establishment of a kingdom and a drawing of people into it. Friends, as we wait, let us wait with great rejoicing. Let's wait. Let's wait with periods of lament. Let's wait seeking justice in our lives. Let's wait longing for his return. And I promise you that this will be a sweet season. A sweet season. Let's take a few moments and I'm going to ask the Spirit of God to move, uh, to bring conviction to our souls. And I'm asking you to pray with me silently, maybe confessing sin, uh, maybe just thanking God for the child. And I'll pray for us in just a moment.